Hey listeners, it's Brady here coming to you on a bit of a special episode. This is an exit interview episode with Jeff Risley. It's a long one. It goes for about two hours um, and it goes through all the things in his running career and it's a long career. So um, yeah, it was amazing to have the opportunity to sit down with Jeff for a long period of time and, and talk about the highs and lows of his careers, the different coaches he's had, the different race experiences at all the different championships he's been to. And yeah, just get to pick his brains on the development of the sport and, and what he thinks needs to change and what things work well and all those kind of things. So I really hope you enjoy this kind of special episode that we've put together to go out this weekend. A massive thanks to Jeff for his time um, and his kind of honesty and authenticity and giving up the um, yeah giving up the the time and the honest answers which he did in this chat here. A massive thanks also goes to our Patreon supporters who help keep the show alive each and every week. Um, there's no way we'd still be doing this podcast if it wasn't for the legendary Patreon supporters who chip in financially to uh, yeah keep the show alive each week and um, you know support the content that we produce and yeah obviously when you're doing two hour long form interviews there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes to make this possible to go to your ears so if you find value in it you can find more information at patreon.com forward slash inside running podcast and um, yeah thanks to those legends who are already chipping in hope you enjoy this one and have a good weekend cheers This week's Inside Running podcast is a special one as it celebrates the career of one of Australia's most successful middle distance athletes. Since 2007, Jeff Risley has been competing at the highest level of the sport and over those 15 years has represented Australia at four Olympic Games, making him one of only nine Australian track and field athletes to do so. Jeff has won six national championships and owns the Australian 1K record with a time of 2.16. He is also the fifth fastest Australian ever over 1,500 with his PB of 3.32 and the sixth fastest over 800 metres with his PB of 1.44. Following the recent Australian Championships, Jeff announced his retirement from the sport. Welcome to the Inside Running Podcast and I guess kind of your exit interview, Jeff Risley. Thanks for giving up some time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brady. How's your last week been, Jeff? I can imagine your phone's been blowing up. As I said, thanks for giving up some time. And, um, yeah, I'm so excited to spend, you know, 60, 70 minutes with you to kind of unpack your your long, successful career. Yeah, it's it's been a pretty crazy week, to be honest. Um, like, I kind of hide – I knew uh, retirement was sort of coming. And, um, yeah, Nationals is really tough, I guess, because it's a heat final process. So, like, you know, I sort of had to get around my head around a heat and um, – you know, the, you know, the, like 800s cutthroat, like tactically. And, you know, I didn't want to kind of miss it. And so there was sort of a lot of stress there. And I just sort of thought, nah, like I'm, um, this is the right moment. And I told JR and then, you know, JR told Pete and Tamsin and it sort of all came out on Saturday night. So 
um it actually ended up being like a really nice way to do it and I had my parents and stuff there but yeah just so many messages and um I think the biggest takeaway that I've sort of realized now that I'm retiring and, and you read out my PBs and stuff, I don't, they don't actually like, they're not actually relevant at all. It's sort of like, it's a little memories along the way, you know, like you get a message from Alan Nelson and, you know, she came on the scene as a 200 meter runner and she stayed with us in Cologne and we like took her under our wing and, you know, we had fam like we took, had a cooking rotation every night and we had family dinners and, um, yeah it's you know it's just little obscure moments at like falls creek and training camps and all these little things along the way you think you know wow i've had a like not just a good career but i've had a pretty like privileged you know life to be able to kind of live you know the athlete lifestyle and like athletics is tough but it's sort of the journey and and you know with the the, the distance running it's it's the camaraderie with other people and and that's i guess why i kept going for so long i just couldn't give that away so yeah, it's going to be an interesting adjustment period. So what were the emotions? Like, is there a bit of sadness or kind of relief or like what? Yeah, tell me what you kind of felt the last couple of days because it's obviously the biggest part of your life and you've been doing it for, you know, you've been doing yeah. this as a job and, and a, you know, a huge chunk of your life longer than you, you haven't been doing it since you've been alive. Yeah, like when I sort of wrote, like, cause I, I sort of had to sort of come out and actually announce it. And, and usually in today's day and age, that's through social media. And, you know, I had to sort of like, I'd write it, not a letter, but, you know, just a little bit of a thing announcing it. And so I kind of opened up word and started putting like notes down on the computer. And that's when like, it really hit home. It's like, Oh, this is final. And just sort of thinking about that, like I had tears. And um, so yeah, there's a bit of like just emotions like bubbling up um yeah and it's just um yeah it's just like I've been doing it for 15 years and you know my life kind of revolves around it like it's a it's a pretty tough sport and you've sort of got to live like eat sleep breathe it you know mm-hmm. so um it's going to be interesting not sort of waking up in the morning and going for that run and and sort of having those weekly plans those short long-term goals of like going towards a pro like a process like work you know so I'm going to miss that sort of continual improvement and you know sessions feeling fitter and just like mm-hmm. kind of building momentum and racing so you know that's going to be tough but you know I'm just sort of hoping that I'm going to be able to channel you know all the things I learned from from running you know the discipline the motivation the resilience all those you know qualities I, I hope I'm going to be able to sort of you know transfer back into the next part of my life and you know whether that's in the sport well it's going to be in sport like I'm finished I've got an internship left in my master's in high performance sport so it's whether I sort of end up in maybe AFL or or track and field or whatever it may be but yeah just start putting that back into people I, I love investing in people and and sort of trying to help people achieve their goals and, and sort of doing it in a way where you know you're creating good humans as well. You know what I mean? Just, yeah, good lessons that not only go into sport, but go into life. I think that's, that's always been sort of how I've prided my career and, um, and, and my training partners. And it's sort of the, the, the environment and the culture that I've trying to, I've tried to build in any group that I've ever been in. So, yeah. Awesome, mate. You just answered about 10 of my questions already in that, in the, in the first couple of minutes, but what I was thinking we could do is, is go through your career um, we could start from the start and then, you know, get up to the retirement, which is, you know, just last weekend. And then I've got about 10 questions I really want to pick your brain on, you know, that kind of, yep. will, um, yeah, and I'm sure we'll jump down some rabbit holes as we go. But let's go back to the start. I'm pretty sure you grew up in a, on a farm and you weren't that super uh, talented, I guess, little athletics kid that did it from a young age, were you? Um, yeah, so 
like my parents have like a, a horse property, but my grandparents actually had a market garden. So my family are like four generation farmers and it's, it's what my old man does. He's not on the farm anymore, but he's like a fruit and veg wholesaler. So yeah, grew up sort of out in Keysborough on the farm. And um, I actually got into athletics in under eights because I was moving from Cranbourne to Narrawarra South and changing schools. And my mum wanted me to meet some kids before I started primary school. So she took me down to Little Ass and, um, I was always like pretty decent at it, but I actually excelled at the high jump. So I was under nine national, uh, state high jump champion. <laughs> were, you, were you tall when you were a kid as well? Because like you're pretty tall yeah. these days. Like you got that tall Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I was tall and um, like my mum played WNBL basketball. So that's sort of like the sport link. Um, yeah, so I think I, I, I won the high jump and I maybe got fifth in in the, the 800 at that time. And I just always kind of loved doing it, but I was like a really like late bloomer. Like I didn't really hit puberty till like year 12. Um, so like I went from my school and I was only one of a few kids that went from my primary school to Mazinon College, which was a Catholic all boys school in Mulgrave. So I was like the tall kid and then I didn't grow until like year 12 and I like stayed the same and I got chubby um, and I sort of started like year 11, I did the cross country, but I was like the fourth in my, my high school team. And like I had a friend who played hockey and ran, he ran with a stick to replicate like hockey. And um, I just had this massive growth spurt. And by year 12, like I did a little bit of running and I had James McInery, who was a 147, 800 meter guy um, as my sports teacher. And I did a little bit more running and ended up winning my ACC cross country. And I went to cross country, I went to state cross country and, I finished 14th and Liam and Dave McNeil were kind of the, the big guys then. And um, I managed to make the um, state all schools team because no one wanted to do the all school team. Oh, yeah, they, they, the they did. Yeah, they did the AV one. So I like got in and I was so excited. I got my uniform and that was my first ever state team. And I remember um, rooming with Liam Adams. And um, at this stage, I was like living in Narrow South and I was doing my runs down the dirt road. Like I was doing 15 minute runs. <laughs> And stuff, and thinking I'm, I'm getting real fit here. Um, and then I, I was rooming with Liam Adams, and I found out he was running like 100, 125 kilometers a week. We were sort of talking about training, and like I was just really curious, and I knew nothing. Um, and this was also a time when, like, we didn't have any internet. Like back in these days, we used to pull like the 56k dial up out of the wall and yeah. like phone. And and was so this nationals like, in Adelaide? Was this where no, was it? Hamber in 2004. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you do all the excursions to the Canberra, like yeah. hands and stuff, but so there just wasn't as much information. So I didn't know anything about it. And I was just like, Oh, I'm in a bit of trouble here. And I finished 45th out of 50 and, um, like cross country obviously was never my thing. Um, I was a track runner and then, yeah, the old schools came along in December and I got second in the 800, but I actually left the national all schools volleyball championships that I was in my, for my team, cause I was an outside hitter. Um, to go up to nationals to do the high jump, the um, four by four hundred and the eight hundred, and I got um, I got second in the um, in the the eight hundred, and that same year I jumped two meters in high jump. So I just had no idea, and I didn't like I was never really in any of the pathways either. So yeah. like I didn't know anything about world juniors, or I didn't know anything. So I finished school that year, and I didn't know what to do. So I just went and played AFL. Um, yeah, so going to the Olympics or anything like that was never on your radar as a 17, 18-year-old. No. Nah, you just having like, some fun. Yeah, to be honest, like my family, were, like we're pretty chill. Um, like we're not very educated. Um, 
you know, dad works on a farm. Like mum and dad didn't finish. I don't think they finished year nine at school. Um, like we just ate bland. Like we were just like, we sporty, we're just simple. We didn't sort of really know anything about it. And you always get asked the question, like, who's your idol, sporting idol growing up? And I never really had one. I just kind of did things. Um, yeah, so I knew nothing about sport. Um, and it wasn't really... I, I remember going to the NA series in 2006 um, because I think Mottram ran the 2K Oceana record of like 450 something. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then it was that um, I, I went and watched the men's 5K as well. It was just me and my brother and um, like at, the, at Com Games, Mottram. Yeah. yeah. At Com Games. And it was yep. just like the crowd when Mottram took the lead, he like stood up and it was yeah. just like, it was insane. And I was just like, wow, this looks pretty fun. Um, so that's when I sort of started training um, properly for it, for, for track and field. But like, if we actually sort of go back a little bit, like um, when I finished football season in 2005, I went back to do athletics in the summer season. And I ended up, um, that was like the same year that Ju- uh, Justin beat me at Vic Champs. So Justin was, was that at the MCG. Yeah, trial race for the trial race. So I raced against JR there and he won. And I ran a PB in the heat semi in the final. I went from I think 152 down to 150 over the three days. Um, but I didn't have the national qualifying mark and I didn't even really know what nationals were to actually like I didn't have the standard to go to the trials for the Commonwealth Games. So I just like watched it. Like I didn't I, I was yeah. yeah. But then um, there was a Box Hill um, meet for Vic Milers. It was the very first year of the Box Hill of the Milers Club. They had a couple of meets on. And um, Chris, uh, Nick McCormick, Roffy, um, Hamblin, there's a few of them who were all running the 1500 at the, the Com Games. They came down to run an 800 as a hit out. And I ran that. And I ran 149.9 and got second to Nick McCormick and um, beat all the other guys. And I think Hamblin ended up getting fourth in the 15. Um, so yeah, I kind of just ran 149.9 just off like absolutely raw talent. And then it was sort of that cross country season. I went and trained and I've actually got my training diary here from that year. And it's hilarious, like 10 minute warmups and sessions yeah. like small. And, um, yeah, I just did all the cross, AV cross country races and I ended up getting myself relatively fit. Um, so that was a big year, wasn't it? So you're talking about this like debut year of athletics that you've got it kind of down to 150. I think, did you run like a, a 351 or 352 in that first year and then um, made yeah, the big so jump? I finished, yeah, I finished that 06 um, season and I finished with PBs of 149.9 and 356. Yeah. And then like I did the cross country season. So I rolled into like the next season and my first 1500 I did, I went 348 and then I went 344 and then I went 341. And then I went to Europe and went 338. Um, yeah. And then 146 for the eight too, wasn't it? That same yeah, season? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was just chopping time off everywhere. And um, that was just a really insane year as well because, like, that was the first time I met um, Nick Badeau. And, um, yeah, like, I went to Wanganui for a mile race. And then I went to Osaka for um, the Golden Grand Prix there. And I think I raced against Nick Simmons. Um and just to put this in perspective, like no one in my family had ever been overseas or had a passport at that stage. So this was like rare air. Um, it was, it's, yeah. it's crazy because 2006, March, April, you're sitting in the MCG stands watching Craig Mottram. 2007, you've got to qualify to go to the next Olympics. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I went to the next world champ. I made the world champs in 2007. 
Seven, um, yeah, went, that's yeah, yeah. I went to World Uni Games as well, so I had a pretty wild year. So I went from I went to Osaka, I went to New Zealand for a mile, and then I went to Japan. I came back, then I went to Europe and did a bunch of races. Then I went to World Uni Games in um, Thailand, and then I went back to Europe and I ran my the standard in Stockholm. And then I went from Stockholm back to Ch- uh, Japan to do the Osaka World Champs. Then I went back to Europe for the Zurich Golden League. Um, where I raced against David Radisha in like an under 23 race. Um, and I ended up with a navicular stress fracture, which yeah. when I look back on, it's probably, uh, yeah. It was riding, riding on the wall. Yeah, yeah, the riding was on the wall. Yeah. So yeah. I just went from nothing to like, yeah, it was just on. Can you remember? So it must have been a significant jump in training as well. Like, can you remember early days of what weeks looked like then for you to make those big jumps? Yeah, was so, it the standard kind of like Nick Badeau, the eight by one k and the the threshold uh, stuff? Well, or? I was coached by Richard Huggins, so yeah, Nick Adam, just yeah, so Richo sort of coached me right through till pretty much two thousand eight nine, and then it just there was like a bit of a handover, um, or just a natural progression, and um, yeah, so like during that winter of like two thousand and six, I was running like sixty k weeks. Um, and then like I ran 348, like in my first race in like that December period. And then I went to, um, in block cause I always did in block. I never did false Creek. Um, and I started running 100 K weeks. So I remember doing my first like hundred K week in January. Um, and then, yeah, I came down and ran 344 and then I ran 341 in Sydney and, um, yeah, it was just was like, yeah. So I had like four weeks of hundred K, but then I would sort of drop back down. So and yeah. when did it become a job for you? Like at this stage, was there a – because you kind of been with Nike whole career, haven't you? Like at this stage, or did you have someone before you went to Nike? No, I started with Nike. Nike so yeah. That's a pretty funny story. It was 2007. And I ran a four-minute mile against Paul Hoffman um, at the Vic Mile Champs, um, and that's when I first met, met Nick Badeau. So a week later, I had 10 pairs of Nike shoes broken up at my door. <laughs> <laughs> every single pair of Nike running you could think of was at my door and like I was 19 and it was just like all my Christmases came at once so yeah. I was just like I was like I was just so excited um yeah so that's how that sort of started so yeah Nike was sort of giving me stuff but then I I raced in these Adidas LDs and I just loved them so like Nike was sending me all this stuff but I won the Melbourne A series. I was so naive. I had no idea what was going on. I won the the, the, um, the A series in my Knox uniform, Nike socks, and Adidas spikes. <laughs> I and love that, that. They were just like they gave me a bit of a tap on the shoulder. I said, "Oh yeah, we're really lucky to give you to wear our spikes if that's right." So, but the milers like gave me blisters, and I just had a lot of trouble with their spikes. And I think I eventually went into a pair of um, I think they were the steeple spikes. You remember like the the red ones that had like the whole. Mm, yeah, I do. Yeah. 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 So I think they were the sort of. Because the, the first. victories would have been, they would have been still a few years off, wouldn't they? Yeah, victories were 08. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, you would have loved it when they arrived then. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I had the special gold pair from the 08 Olympics that they gave us. And they're the ones I ran 332 in and um, my first 145 and 351 miles. So, um, yeah, there's a few performances that, that I've sort of got that are attached to a certain pair of shoe that I'll. I'll probably, yeah, sort of hold on to for memorabilia. But, um, yeah, it was just like, it was just a whirlwind. It just went um, mental. And, yeah, I sort of was with Nike. And um, my deal was, like, small. Um, it was more performance-based. And then 
I signed with them at the end of 2009 and that was like when I started, I was really professional. I was making quite good money at that stage. I'd run 332 and 351 at I think age 22. And um, at sort of that stage, it was only really like, there wasn't very many actually Americans. That was like when like the Americans had a bit of a lull. And I think off the back of that is when they started sort of pumping heaps of money into the Nike Oregon project. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was really me and Willis. We were the sort of two, um, I guess, would you call us white guys? I don't know if that's politically correct or not, but, yeah. Because yeah. Alan Webb's retired by this stage, has he? I'm trying to no, think. Oh, yeah, Alan Webb was doing his thing, yeah, but he was like, he was running 27 minutes for 10K and then running crazy miles. And yeah, okay, yeah. He was a little Sh- bit all over the place. But, yeah, it, him and then, uh, yeah, there wasn't really a lot of, depth at that stage like it was Medi Barler and um all these other runners so and at this stage you're like racing you know um was it still were they called golden leagues back then or was it diamond league when did you would have done a bit of both uh yeah the golden, golden spike there were only six races and it was Oslo um Zurich uh Rome there were three that I can remember um Stockholm was a, was what they called a super diamond league or something. No, yeah, it was like that were the levels under, and then there was yeah. uh, not a super diamond league. It was a um, super grand prix, and then there was a grand prix under it. So Melbourne had the grand prix that was like the world challenge kind of thing. Yeah, yeah there's these different rankings, and yeah, then there was the the golden league where if you won all the races, you got the, the million dollars or something. That's right. Yeah. And this, I remember, like, it'd be on SBS, you know, you'd, you'd see the replay the next day or if you got up alive and it's a it's a whole era, like you spoke about before, of, like, pre-Strava, pre-Instagram. Yeah. Um, and we are just saying off air before, like, I pretty much started running just when you were getting into things. And I used to remember you'd always dominate those uh, Melbourne Track Classics and stuff at Olympic Park and then, you'd, yeah. then, you'd, then you'd, when it went to Lakeside. And, yeah, I was um, nearly undefeated at, at Olympic Park. I love that place. Because <laughs> there was a big win there, wasn't there? Was there a big win, Kiprop? Yeah, Kiprop twice. Yeah. Um, and nearly got Rhodesia at Lakeside, didn't you? Or was that only got Park? at Lakeside, yeah. And then there yeah. was another guy, Yusuf Kamal. So he won world champs in 2009 at Berlin. He was like the Kenyan turn Bahraini. Yep. Um, so he came out following here in 2010 and I beat him in Melbourne as well. So, um, yeah, Melbourne was a, was a good stomping ground for me. But, yeah, those guys would all go to another level. When it went to Europe, it was a lot harder to beat. Uh, yeah, yeah. So then first Olympic experience, Beijing. You still would have been pretty young. What, 20? Um, 21? Yeah, 21 I was, yeah. Tell yeah. me about it. What was that like? Um, it was actually a nightmare because I, um, we were, uh, we did our pre-camp at Happy Valley in Hong Kong, you know, the horse racing, the horse racing track, track yeah. which we weren't allowed to run on because it was like hollow turf. Um, <laughs> so we were just doing all these loops on these concrete fields in the inside of it. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, I got sick there. So like when I rocked up to Beijing, I got put in quarantine because I had like a fever like I was sweating and I had like coats on and I couldn't like I was freezing cold and um yeah so I stood on the stout line and I'm coughing and splattering and I ran 354 and um, I was in the heat that Rashid Ramsey ran 332 in oh right and broke the Olympic record so I think we went 56 first lap and I'm sick and I'm on the back going oh no what is happening here (laughs) it's just like Two laps in, I was just, I was 
like 30 meters behind and there was nothing I could do it. And it was my first Olympics. I'd sort of been selected, not controversially, but because Athletics Australia had different qualifying like periods, the period had ended when I ran the standard for the 1500. Okay. So basically like I was trying to run the 800 and I ran within 0.1 or 0.2 about three times. So I didn't run the standard. Um, and then it ended and then um, Craig Mottram and Benita Willis and um, a lot of our group were going up to St. Moritz to do a bit of a training camp. Um, so I went, Nick sent me up there and I trained with them and he got me into the Rome Golden League. And I went down there and I ran 336.0, which was the fastest anyone had run in Australia for quite a while. Um, and I ran the standard. So the, the window was still open for every other country in the world, except for Australia. And that's when like, there was a big, like the journos got behind me and started putting heaps of pressure on AA to select me. Um, okay. And, so this is like yeah. the Jen Lacaz story, like just a few years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, it was, they, they did it again. Like, they, yeah. they, you know, they, it, the exact same thing happened. So Alan Jones was the big, because he's, he's a big guy in, in media and he puts so much pressure. And basically, Alan, um, uh, is it Joyce? Uh, who's the, um, who was yeah, that? Alan Joyce. No, the, no, no, that's the quite No, who's the, um, the big uh, AOC guy? Oh, yeah. Mate, you should know this. You've been the my, my um, Anyway, he basically ended up selecting me. I think he tapped AA on the shoulder and said, put this guy in. So that's how I made my first Olympics. Oh, right, yeah. Back way. And, um, yeah, so that was also tough because, like, I sort of got in there and I kind of wanted to prove myself. And, you know, I guess at that stage I was kind of seen as the next guy. You know, Motram was, like, on another level. Um, but I was sort of the young guy coming through. And so that was really tough. Um, yeah, funny story, actually. AA said I should take a year off the sport. <laughs> because what, an injury or something? No, just no because, like, it was just such a bad experience and everything. Oh, like, after the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and a year to recover. About, yeah, I thought about retiring and getting an apprenticeship and um, I was just like, yeah, this is, you know. But you were um, just sick, weren't you? What's the... Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, yeah. I know. I was just sick, but it's sort of like when you're underperforming Olympics and everyone's watching. It's just like it's like a magnifying. Feels like there's a magnifying mm. glass on you, you know. And I just sort of thought, um, yeah, that's that's um, yeah, that's all. Like, uh, yeah, I just yeah. And then I remember coming through the tunnel and um, <laughs> Nick Guard uh, tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Look, I'm not your friend. I'm not going to be your shoulder to cry on." Yeah. And that was <laughs> that was the. That was what I got from Nick, so that was quite funny. Um, he's walked off. I was like, oh, okay. So just run 354 for a 1500, and I was just like, just destroyed. So I actually saw that when I was putting all the notes together for this, like I saw the time and I saw that you're 11th in the heat, and I just thought, oh, it must have been a, must have been a real slow race, really tactical. <laughs> no, it I Olympic. didn't know it was one in Olympic record time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I ended up sort of going home and I was really determined and I trained really hard. And that was the year I came out. I didn't lose in Australia. I ran 335 at the nationals, um, went to Europe. I ran 332, nine, 351, two, 145, four. Um, yeah. Um, you can see how that could have gone the other way though. Could have, that could have broken you. Yeah. 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 It could have. Um, but yeah, I was pretty stubborn and just trained, just trained hard and, yeah, that was sort of like the coming out year, really. Two thousand nine is when, yeah, semi final at World Champs, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, semi-final world champs. Um, I quickly learned that, yeah, 1500 is a tactical and it's tough and you've sort of got to be strong. <laughs> um, I still ran 338 in my heat, but I think I was like eighth or ninth. Um, yeah. Didn't make it through, so. And tell me about uh, that culture of um, like the Melbourne Track Club at the time, which we've built around, I guess, Mottram and Benita, like two superstars of the sport globally. Yeah. You were just a bit of a younger kid. Like I'm <laughs> sure it was a pinch yourself moment at times, but other times like, you know, pull the line, this is what we do, keep up. Yeah. Um, yeah, i got some funny stories, which I probably can't. Well, not, they're not actually funny. I probably can't say them. But, um, yeah, Craig, Craig gave me a really hard time my first year in Europe, like really hard time. But I was naive. I knew nothing. And I used to just sit there and watch him. <laughs> I just used to watch everything he do. Like we had a 9.30 cutoff for training run. If you weren't there, he, like people left too yeah. bad. Um, you know, I watched – the drinks he um, so he was must have been sponsored by Endura at the time. So I pretty much got home and just stocked up on Endura. <laughs> um, I just watched everything he did, the mentality he had, and and how he prepared, and you know what he did during the days. And um, I just learned that first year. I just learned as much as I could. Well, first few years, yeah. And then Benita, she was yeah, she was um, by that stage she was sort of moving up to the marathon, so she kind of wasn't around as much. Um, you know, like I think, do you know when she ran her 222 at Chicago? Do you know what year that was? Not off the top of my head, no. Nah. But you would have been there like um, the cross-country title years, wouldn't you? No, that was 2006, I'm pretty sure. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah, you so just I, missed I, that. I was, yeah, so I was a little bit, so I think she was 2006 that, and then she was sort of running them, because she ran the marathon in Beijing. That's right, yeah. Yeah, because she, really she was doing marathon prep in, in St. Moritz when I was there, so Yes, B was lovely. She was like the mother figure of the group and she kind of looked after me. So she was like my mum overseas. Um, but, yeah, it was an interesting dynamic. Um, probably a little bit toxic at times. Um, and it was also like I think um, Craig left Nick in 2008 um, after the Olympics. So yeah, Beijing, yeah, you're right. Yeah, they, were, or they were butting heads already and just yeah disagreeing on a lot of stuff and so yeah it was sort of a bit of a different like culture and we had Collis who was really good and Bromley who was really funny and we had Dave Campbell who was a crazy Irishman yeah physio too wasn't he yeah yeah he later went on to be the physio for OTC so he used to spend summers at my family's house and he lived there um just to save money um, and then, yeah, we had Andy Badley, who was also training. So, yeah, we had like a, an Adrian Blinko as well. So we had a really, a really good group. Um, yeah. So then injured not long after, was it 2010? You didn't have many results on two, in 2010. Did you get injured again there? So that's 2009 was when my plan of fascia started. Okay. Yeah. So by the then- time I got to world champs, it was in a pretty bad way and it was being taped and stuff, but like, you know, I was just sitting on any flams and I kind of got through that and I went back and tried to do a couple of races and I just broke down. So I ended up shooting home and having to take a lot of recovery. Um, and then, yeah, 2010 was when Ryan came onto the scene. Um, that was when he ended up breaking the Australian record. So I think from memory, it might've been like 2009, he went and ran that 10K in like 2840 something. Do you remember? Yeah. Hobart, yeah. yeah, it was Bernie 10, I think. And I think yeah. it was 29. I think it was 29 20 because a young kid in my town ran 29 22 and just missed it at 19 year old. 
And he broke no, his he definitely. I'm pretty sure he definitely was 28, 47. Oh, 28. Sorry, I thought you said 29, 47. Yeah. No, no, 29. I, I think it was 28, 47. I have a feeling he might have outkicked Benny Sane or... Yeah, okay. Do you know pretty, if he was still under 20 then or do you reckon he was... Yeah, I reckon he was under 20. That yeah, okay. Year. I think he also ran the 337 and then I think the following year he ended up going like 331 or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Crazy progression. Insane. So we were. That's when sort of our little rivalry started in 2010, and we also had Roffy and Mitch Keeley that year who had standards for for con games. So it was pretty ruthless. But yeah, my plan was in a real bad way. I couldn't get it right. Um, I still did okay. Like I beat Nick Willis over an, an 800 in in Christchurch for that meet that we do, and I still won the 1500. I, so I managed to kind of pull a few results together. Um, and then, yeah, we went over to Penn Relays and that's when I partially tore my planner in the race. So I sort of came home, took some rest, and then I started to get going again to try and get right for Com Games and ended up needing surgery. So that year was a bit of a write-off. So, yeah, I remember waking up in the morning actually and um, seeing Ryan run the Australian record in, in Monaco. Monaco, I yeah. So angry. Um, yeah. I think I, yeah, I punched a few walls that morning actually. Um, so even though your teammates were doing like it was still like you wanted it like super competitive kind of thing you couldn't celebrate yeah well like I run I ran the year before I ran uh 332.9 and like I kind of wanted that 1500 record and was that at Monaco you did that no I did that in Rome so a lot of my PBs are actually in Italy um yeah so I wanted that bad and then he kind of came and got it and I was like shit and I obviously was injured and (laughs) couldn't respond to it um yeah so then 2011 World Champs, debut, you got back on a team there, which was good, and then that led yep. into the 2012 Olympics in London, so your second Olympic experience. Yeah, yeah. So 2011 was actually a pretty critical year um, for me. Um, I ran, a th- it was probably nearly one of my better years. So I ran a 352 mile in the pouring rain in Oslo. I beat Choggy and I finished fifth behind like Katani um kip rock um a Saturday raven guy i think who ended up doing getting done for drugs but like i beat it was a stellar field and like with 200 to go i was right with them but they just kind of got away from me um i also ran the world lead and won the strava 1k um i ran 333 that year in in monaco um sick <laughs> um so yeah Dagu, there was a lot of expectation that that was going to be my championship and um that's when mine and Nick's relationship started to fracture. Um yeah. So because you didn't progress like out of the heat, is that why? Um, no, we just had a few really tough situations in the pre-camp. He tried to get me to do a couple of sessions that I just wasn't ready for really close to the event and like I just couldn't do them. And I said, like, I can't do this, and he ripped shreds off me and told me all these stories and my cars were cooked. My whole, yeah, I was just cooked. Um so that's when I started questioning what the hell were we doing because I kept getting to these t- titles and not performing, even though I'm running all the best races in the world. Um, yeah, because what was happening at Diamond Leagues and what you just explained like with those guys with 200 metres to go and then yeah. not being able to make a final or, you know, not being able to make yeah, made, yeah. made one semifinal, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I was actually reading my diary, my training diary from that year, and it was like just really negative. Like a lot of me questioning if I have the ability to be good and if I have the right mentality and the right temperament and all that sort of stuff. And I think that was sort of coming just from, um, yeah, me and Nick's relationship just being fractured. So 
that was probably the start of when I sort of thinking I need a bit of a change, but yeah, well, uh, Olympics were for the following year. So I kind of stuck it out. Um, mm. Yeah, in hindsight, would you do that? is bad reading, actually, when I read it back. It's it's, um, all, it's pretty good that you've got it documented there, though. Like, it's yeah. this is pre-Strava days, and you're sitting down with a journal and putting numbers in, and yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's going to be some fond fond memories, you know, yeah, time going love, back and reading love, it. Yeah, love writing my training diaries. Um, yeah, so that kind of led into 2012, and yeah, like 2012 was actually a really good year, but I, that was the start of my osteitis pubis as well, so. Um, that was when things started getting crazy, actually. So I had some pretty bad adductor pain and had OP. And um, before I went overseas, I went and had this treatment and it was RFD. So they, they um, heat like a metal rod up to like 90 degrees, I think. And they stuck it in my groin to burn the nerve to my pubic area so yeah. that I wouldn't feel it. <laughs> And it took the pain away, but then pain went elsewhere. And like, <laughs> I was just, yeah, like I, uh, <laughs> I was just, so that whole year I was ruined. Like I could, um, I could hardly run at different times and I was on anti-inflammatories. Um, I was on these um, heartburn tablets because I was getting so much reflux from the <laughs> anti-inflammatories I was on. Um, yeah. There's some things I've done in my body. I'm just like, I look back and I'm just like, shit, what? the fuck was I doing? Um, yeah. So like I ran 144, 48 leading up to the Olympics and things were going really well, but like in training, like I was, um, I had Tristan Garrett, who was a four, eight guy helping me a lot of my speed work. And like, I'm running 34 second, three hundreds and stuff, but it would literally take me 30 or 40 meters, like of grimacing to get my body up to pace and my groins to be okay. And then to finish the rep. And then I'd be in pain. It was just, um, it was shocking. Um, yeah, and then I had a really bad Olympics again. Um, and, and that was 800 for this Olympics, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, was in, yeah. I made both, but the timetable clashed. So I chose 800. So that was when I was just like, I ran a PB before the Olympics and a PB in my two races either side of the Olympics. For the Olympics, like I was in a position to easily qualify with 100 to go and like just couldn't, no gears. Um, and because think, of the OP? <clears throat> No, I think it's just the training leading into it. It's just too much. Yeah. Never tapered enough, really, in my opinion. So that's the trend that's kind of like, we've still got 10 years of your career to go <laughs> because we're only up to 2012. But the trend I'm hearing from this end of the mic is like run some quick times, then have a pretty poor championships to your standards of what you're capable of. And then like it's a real up and down kind of thing. Like it, it, it really depends on what week it was, if it was going to be a fast one or if it's the week after you when you're still tired because of the fast one. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to say anything too. Hey, you're very tired now. You can say what you want. Yeah. Um, you can cut anything if you want at the end of the conversation and say, hey, you know, yeah, that, yeah. No, that like, um, yeah, like Nick taught me a lot. Like he taught me what was required to be a good athlete and the mentality and, like there's some things that made me a good athlete that and my longevity that are, are attributed to Nick, there's no doubt. But I just sort of felt that at times we were always training super hard because it wasn't just the championships. We had to go back and race afterwards as well. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's sort of like, um, yeah, so there's just a, like some sessions that we did and and maybe just didn't drop the loads enough or, there's just something that wasn't quite right. 
Um, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> so when, so when was it after that Olympics that you left and I then left, yeah, Andrew yeah. Russell? Yeah. Yeah, so that's when I left, yeah. And, um, yeah, so, like, I went and ran 216.64 or something. I missed the Australian record. So I missed the 800-meter record before the Olympics by 0.08. Cool. And then I missed the 1K record afterwards by 0.03. <laughs> and I was just like, damn. And through that. those stages, do you have, like, do you have the belief when you put a good time on the board and then you lose a bit of a belief with the championship races and then you have a good performance so you get the belief back again? Like, is it a bit of a yo-yo, like your headspace and what to what to think about your, the setup around you? Yeah, yeah. Like, I just started, like, just, uh, yeah, asking too many questions um, before a race and trying to control. Like, obviously, tactics are different, like, at a championship compared to a race. Like, when you run a fast, you just go with the pace and, so there's that sort of stuff um, that, yeah, just sort of needed to get my head around. But, um, yeah, I, there's tactics and then there's sort of being at the top of the straight and not being able to go. Oh, yeah. Low race, you know. Like, um, like one of my races in 2009 at that Berlin World Champs, I closed in 51-2 or something for my last 400. It was, out, it was crazy. Um, that was always my ability. So, um, yeah, I just sort of felt that it just kind of wasn't working. I think mentally, you know, um, Nick's way of dealing with me probably wasn't the best way. Um, Nick has a really hard edge about him, which you kind of need, but you also need to realise that that approach doesn't work for everybody. Um, And, like, I'm sort of wearing my heart on my sleeve kind of guy, like, I wouldn't say like I'm an emotional, but like I think about things and I like to feel things and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, when he would constantly tell me off, like I wasn't like much from where I'll be like, you know what, fuck you. I'm going to go and prove you wrong. Like I would go into my shell, you know? Mm-hmm. So I just think the sort of the dynamic and his style of coaching just sort of didn't really, um, yeah, sort of work that well, I guess for me. And And that's when, I decided to make the move at 2012, which was, yeah, I still remember going to tell Nick and I thought I was going to shit my pants. <laughs> like I was, it was the most scared I've ever been in my whole entire life. Yeah. It's like going into the principal's office in a school, like is that kind of vibes? Like it's, it works. Yeah. It works. Um, you know, and I sort of felt bad because he, he did so much for me as well, you know, but, um, you know, yeah, showed me the world and travelled mm. and, and took you from that kid at, at Vic yeah. Miles Club to an Olympian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so I have, you know, had a lot of a lot of respect for him as well. But yeah, it's just um it's just yeah, it's just tough. He's tough. <laughs> so then you're coachless, um, and you also lose that group effect, like the the names you were throwing up before, your training partners and your travel buddies and go on yeah. training camps and all that kind of stuff. Yep. I imagine yeah, for a few weeks there you're probably stuck solo and you're trying to figure out what's the next step. Yeah, so myself and Kayla McKnight also left. So she ran the Olympics in the 1500. So I didn't have, in in a sense, a male training partner, but at least I had someone with the same mentality turning up to training, you know what I mean? Professional. Yeah, professional and we was trying to achieve the same goals and, you know, that sort of thing. And and this was around the same time when Zach Patterson started getting better because um, 2014 he got fifth at World Junior. So he sort of started coming into the fold a little bit and, um that's when I sort of also um bought James Hansen in um he ended up coming and living with me in Elwood um 
so yeah, I sort of started to, I guess, try and bring a couple of people in around me and try and create that group environment and um, yeah, just sort of take a little bit of the, the challenge off. But uh, my osteitis pubis was just so bad in 2012. I went and traveled. I did some backpacking after 2012 and like, it was so bad. I couldn't even run. Like I couldn't walk on uneven surfaces. Like I was just, yeah. So I pretty much missed the whole of 2013 recovering from that. Um, and, and even 2014, I remember being slumped in a gutter over Easter at, up at Janjuk for, cause we go there over Easter and do a bit of surfing and watch the Rip Curl Pro and my oxidized pubis was still bad then. And I'm thinking I'm never going to run again. Like this is the worst. Um, you had your head in your head, your head in your hands, didn't you? Your old man was like thinking that was it. Like didn't want to, didn't want to see you putting yourself yeah, through this anymore. In gutter, just crying, just like. I can't do this anymore. Like I'm still in pain. Like what is going on? Um, then we got this Andrew Hogan guy who consulted for the Hawthorne football club. So he was a groin specialist. Um, and we sort of made a few tweaks. Um, I basically had to get to a point where one of the physios at the footy club, um, and because I have an ultrasound machine there, they retaught me to use my pelvic floors. So for quite a while, I had to retrain my pelvic floors and get all that back. And then I basically had to then go from there into some really basic Pilates using those things and just retraining sort of all my core, like activating my glutes, just getting that whole hip thing to try and stabilize my pubis to be able to sort of run again. This is post-pregnancy stuff, mate. This is Yeah, uh, yeah. And this is 2014 and like that year I was, yeah, um, Oh, yeah, but well, that year I got two fifth of the Com Games. Yeah, I want to talk about that. But tell me, how did you get Andrew Russell? Because he's always worked in AFL clubs. I think he's at Carlton now, isn't he? he went from Hawthorne yeah, to yeah, Carlton. So he's at Carlton. Yeah, so oh uh, yeah. Um, so the one person who's been with me throughout my whole career is Andrew Lambert. So he was a Geelong boy, um, eight hundred meter runner, trained under Scribo and that whole crew. Um, I think he was a junior national champion, maybe like under seventeens. So he was the physio at the VIS when I was there in 2007. And then 2008, he went full-time. He was also working at Hawthorne. He went full-time. And I was the only athlete that he kept treating because I sort of lived out in Harkaway at that stage, which was near the footy club. And, and that's where I met Andrew Russell. Um, he shared a back fence with Troop in Ballarat. So he's a Ballarat boy. Okay. Um, he ran 802 for 3K and I think 340-something, like when he was like 20. So he was a runner. Um yeah, he was in the same race that Troopy ran his 740 Australian 3K record in Sydney. And he said he went through in 352 and absolutely blew up through 1500. Um, like he was just in the pack. Yeah, so he was a like a runner. His first love was running, but obviously in football. And he'd been doing a little bit of stuff with Georgia Clark as well, at the back end of oh, her yeah. career. Yep. Um, and so he'd been doing my strength and conditioning from about 2008 onwards. Um, so he already knew my training. He followed Nick's training really closely. He was always keen. Um, and yeah, he's, he decided to, to take me on. And, um, but it was a unique situation. So that's when we sort of started doing some different things. So that's when I started using training peaks in 2012 or 2013, um, which was pretty revolutionary for back then. No one else was really kind of using that kind of software. And, um, yeah, started logging a lot of training and trying to get a bit more of an understanding of training loads and things like that. But it was more also just cut out a lot of the communication because he, he wasn't able to come to a lot of sessions. So 
that's where Richard Huggins, who my first coach was, um, sort of, he's always been around, even though like I was coached by Nick, I still like was really friendly with him and I go down to police paddocks and still train with his group when I was in Melbourne. And so he was sort of the eyes and ears and, and Jack would sort of get to a session a fortnight maybe. Um, and yeah, I took on a lot of responsibility as well for just trying to get everyone else and create the environment and stuff. So, um, yeah, I remember yeah, when you built that because it was like Tommy Forthorpe and Craig yeah. Appleby and it was just kind of like, and then you guys had like good winters and stuff with the Knox boys. Like it was a really strong, um, you know, something that was kind of built from, it was kind of built around you, I guess, when you were back in that situation. Yeah, and look, I, 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 did, I did a lot of aerobic work. Like I still ran 120K weeks there. Mm-hmm. I still did my K reps. I still did thresholds. So for most of the training, it worked. Like I, you know, with those guys, they were brilliant. Like they were at my level for that sort of stuff and better than me. So, you know, we always had our Listerfield crew on a Sunday and um, yeah. So like I was able to sort of make it work and um, like take a training partner over to Europe one year. And so that helps. I had someone to train with and um, yeah, it was, it was tough, um, but I managed to kind of make it work. And um yeah, 2014 was a bit of a turning point because that was my first championships, like in, with my new coach, and I ran was, five races in five days. You got the double, didn't you? It was the first time in 25 years you won the 800 and the 15. Well, that was 2015, but in 2014 at the Com Games, that was my first major championship with my new coach. Since, okay, yeah, yeah, and like it was just different. Like the, you know, I felt fresh. I felt free, and like you come I, home you know, super five days in a row, and, and you come home super strong in both those races. Like I um, yeah, yeah. I watched both of them last night. Like with that fifteen, I'm not sure which one was first, the eight or the fifteen final. Eight was first, yeah. The fifteen, if I had been a bit more aggressive, I maybe could have been a little bit better. But um, the eight, yeah. Nigel Amos wins it. Radisha's second, and then. Was you pretty much were there with the photo almost for third? Yeah, yeah. So David Oliver was a South African who ran 144 a bunch of times. And then Chariot was the world junior record holder at 142. And he just got silver in the other Olympic, like the Rio, uh, Tokyo Olympics. Oh, same Chariot. Yeah, right. Same Chariot. Yeah. And then in the one, in the, um, I had Quimoy who went on to run three. Yeah. I think he ran 28, 328 that year. I had Magut. Mate, mate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Nick Willis. Willis left his run really late. He just yeah. got the bronze. Yeah, and then there was Cronier uh, who got in 2013 won bronze at the World Champs, and I was fifth. So yeah, but you were, you were last with 300 to go. You come home flying. Yeah. Okay. So fifth race in five days. I <laughs> I probably just didn't back myself enough. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was also crazy because like um, Jake Wagner was in that race yeah. as a 20 year old. Um, Charlie Grass was in that race. Yeah. So. Now the current kind of crop of guys are from that race are, are now pushing through and, and killing it. It's, it's, it's hard to get a Commonwealth Games medal, isn't it, though? Over 8 and 15 um, yeah. when you've got to race those guys because they're the most dom- pretty much, you know, the most dominant guys in the world. Maybe you're still going to chuck the Ethiopians in there, but yeah, you, know, yeah. you don't dodge many of them. No, no. So, yeah, it was, um, it was tough, but it was, that was like those five days were just incredible. It was just I don't like I was taking caffeine and going to bed late and sleeping in and I was just doing everything. Like it was just like recovery is on repeat. And um, yeah, it was just incredible five days. My parents were every race. I was so excited. And um, but yeah, it was like that sort of got my belief back that, yeah, like I can run at a championship race if you prepare. And yeah. And evidence of what you're doing is working. 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then I sort of translated that into 2015 and won the double at the Nationals. And 2015, I think, was probably when I was in the best shape of my career. Well, that was that was some significant wins because you had to get past Gregson, who had the Australian record, and Alex Rowe, who yep. had the Australian record over the 800. And you were the yep. only guy that went and tried to do the double? Yeah, and Ryan had beaten me at the Sydney Track Classic. Um, Philo paced us and I got on the pace because we wanted to run fast and I put it on the line and he passed me in the last 70 metres and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I, I remember coming out of the track and um, Andrew Russell was there and I swore at him. I said, you fucking set me up. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like I hated losing. Um, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because the next week I think I went around 145-2 against Rhodesia and, like, I needed to get myself out of my comfort zone and find out what I had and I had a lot. Um, Were you friendly with Ryan and stuff through these years as well? Like, he's, he's now that 1,500-metre guy at, at MTC and you'd kind of left on, you know, potentially bad terms and then you're racing each other with 70 metres to go, like you said? Um no, we sort of tended to avoid each other. Um, even when, like, we are in the group, we kind of weren't actually that close. Um, yeah. We kind of just had different personalities. He was quite, like, out there and brash. He was, like, the young guy coming through. And, like, I'm actually very introverted. So, like, sometimes I feel like maybe I'm not approachable. Some people might think I'm not approachable or friendly. It's just like I'm a bit socially awkward and a bit of an introvert. But like when I get to know someone, like I invest heavily. But yeah, Nick, um, Nick kind of put pitted, pitted us together as well. Like, you know, it was sort of like that Ovet Co rivalry, even mm-hmm. though we're in the same group. You know what I mean? It was sort of, so it was sort of tough. But Ryan was spending a bit of time up in um, New South Wales because he's from Sydney. Um, and then because I was a bit of a homebody, I didn't go to Laguna. I didn't spend like from May till September overseas. I only went over for short stints. So I liked, I liked being at home with, you know, my crew here and, you know, list of field runs and all that sort of stuff. So our paths didn't sort of cross that much. And then, yeah, I just remember like 2012, we raced against each other for the, the title for the Olympic trials. And there was a big write up in the paper. And I think Nick called me the, pretty boy i don't know silver spoon or something i don't know something like that and um ryan was the junkyard dog so that's sort of how he um i guess described us it was like written like that in the newspaper and i was just like oh that's i don't know why i got that tag because i come from pretty much nothing but um yeah so we would sort of friendly but not really friendly and um I guess 2015 was probably the last time as well that I actually ran the 1500 because I ended up sort of doing more of the eights and, and 2006 is after 2016 is obviously where I had quite a bit of time out of my career. Yeah. And yeah, less time to clash in races, go head to head, I suppose. So then yep. another plan to injury 2015, wasn't that, did you have to pull out of world champs? You'd made a semi, was that right? Yeah, I made the semi. So yeah, like I was saying, 2015 was probably the best year of my career. Um, like I won the double, um, I was actually after Ollie ran 148.8 in that 800, I was sort of asking Luke what he closed his 800 in, in 2019 <laughs> when he won and he was 150.0 and I was 150.0 as well, but we went, ran 52.6 last laps. Okay. So different. Um, yeah. the way we did it. Um, yeah. So two thousand after 2015, like, yeah, doing that double, that was pretty crazy. And then, but, um, 
went over to Europe and I just kind of couldn't get into the races that I kind of needed to get into. That was my biggest challenge. Because um, you would have had a change in management. Yeah, I had, over you. I had, um, yeah. I had Andy Stubbs, who was one of the nicest guys ever, but he just didn't quite have the same pull that Nick had. Like, Nick is an incredible manager. Like, mm. the races that he can get his guys into is just sometimes it's, I don't know how, I shake my head, I don't know how he does it. But I guess that's just when you've been in the sport for so long. And, um, yeah, you've got a reputation and, um, you know, you've got good guys. So, um, yeah, I just, I, I ran 144.99 in, in Lignano in a, like a small meet um, where I ran 144.4 before. So it was a really nice track. I won that race pretty comfortably. Um, but like one of the sessions, I last session I did before I go into Beijing, I did four by 400 on four minutes recovery and average 50.5. So I think I went 51.0, 50.5, 49.7, and then 50.3. Jeez. That was my 400s. Um, and then a short break and then three by 150s in 18 um, on short recovery. Like, so, but, so I felt that I was in probably 143 shape that year. Um, but the next day I had to fly to Japan and maybe we just overcooked it a fraction with the travel um, being so close to the session. And I just remember flying in my plan. I was just getting sore and sore. I'm like, what the hell has happened? Um, so yeah, my plan, it just blew up on me. Um, and I had about eight days in Japan before I actually raced and we ended up putting a cortisone in it just to try and settle it down. And, um, before the heat, I went and had also had a local injection in it just so I couldn't feel it for the race. And, um, that year I watched all the previous, um, 2013 heats and I timed every single one with the first lap and the last 200. And I basically figured if I run a 26.5 or a 26 low last 200 from whatever position I'm in, I'll be top three easy. Um, and yeah, I gave my family nearly a heart attack because I was coming from a fair way back, but I just cruised down the outside and I was top three easy. Um, and I was just jogging and I was like, Oh yeah, we're on here. Um, an hour later, the cortisone wore off, uh, the, the local wore off and I couldn't even walk. I was in so much pain and yeah, I tore the shit out of my planner. Um, Ouch. crazy part was I still went back for this. Like, so that next like 36 hours, I was doing isometric holds and trying to like get it, you know, just try and take a bit of pain out of it. And well, went back to the track to warm up for the, the semi, put another local injection in it. I tried to uh, warm up and I did like a 10 minute jog and I went to do a stride and I could just feel it like, but nah. So I flew home the next day and I think the second day I was home, I was having plantar surgery again. So 2015 was, yeah, I just didn't get everything out. That year I was at the peak of my power. But then it's ridiculous to think that then you get yourself up again for 2016 and like another Olympics. Like it's, yeah. Yeah. I was a little bit lucky um, because I ran the 144.9 in the window. I was, okay. I already had the qualifying standard. Um, so there was a lot of discussions. Do I have this surgery? Like I've ruptured already. So the classic, you know, um, uh, Robert Harvey jumping off the table, natural, you know, plan fixed, or I've already had a good result from a previous surgery and been pain-free. Do I just go and get it operated on just in case because it's Olympic next year and I don't want any bodies. So we went and operated on it, but there was just so much scar tissue and everything from like the rupture that it just didn't heal properly. So like I barely ran in the domestic season. Um, and then I made a bit of a late run 
at it to get overseas. Um, and my first race, I ran 147, but I lost to Josh Ralph, which didn't help me because he was sort of in the frame for selection. Um, and they wanted to obviously select me because I had the fastest time. And then I had to go and do a race in Kortjik in Belgium. And I ran 147, uh, 46.2, did quite well. And that was enough to like ensure my selection. So I sort of actually didn't run a standard within the year leading in, but I already had the standard. So I was sort of a little bit lucky, but then I did a couple more weeks of training and I, I got a, I switched managers and my new managers got me into London Diamond League and I ran 145.1. Okay. Um, so like I was starting to really run into shape, but Rio was just a nightmare because the travel and the logistics of it was just crazy. Like I was in Cologne. So I flew, I think 27 hours to get down to Florida to the IMG. Um, and then I had three or four days there. And then I had, and we had an overnight fly into Rio. So no sleep. And I was the very, very first morning of the program. Not that same day. No, we had three days there. Three, three days, four okay. days. They organized three four days. Yeah. We're getting in there. So, like, I was the very first morning and I just felt like shit still. Um, and I just, yeah, didn't get out. Like, I was in the perfect heat. Um, one of the guys took it out. It was strung out. Every chance to run fast. And um, you come fourth, though, didn't you? Was it top three or top two automatic? Yeah, top three, yeah. So, did oh, I okay. run with six, maybe? I've just got your fourth position. Don't have your time next to me. Yeah, oh, so, yeah 146. Like was, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that was just disappointing. Like I should have been better than that, but I think just all the travel and everything mm. that's got to me. And I think the other thing was because I was coming from so far back, like every day had to be like 120%. Like I was just going for everything and like there's just no room for error. And I also didn't have like months and months of training and that strength to kind of fall back on. And I just came unstuck a bit. So yeah, that was actually like significantly hard because it's like, I've just gone to my third Olympics and it's been terrible again. Like I was just like, what is, you know, like everyone wants to run an Olympics. Everyone wants to represent their country. And that's like the biggest stage and like to go to three of them and not, get a result that you can actually be satisfied with that was just that hurt me a lot did you start to feel pressure as well like you know people talking behind your back maybe you know potentially saying things like oh you can't perform at the olympics and stuff like that um not so much because like when i moved to andrew i changed that championship mentality yeah, con games. i had con games i had australian champs i'd won the double yeah you know, Beijing, I was in unbelievable shape. So there was nothing on that. It was just like, it's just the planning. You know, I think in my opinion, AA probably had a little bit to answer for, for that. Yeah. The little logistics and stuff. Florida, like a 13 hour flight out of Rio, like when we could have been elsewhere. Um, you know, it just seemed odd. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And those games were like a bit shambles and stuff too, weren't they? Like what was it yeah, like that in the village like, and that? Yeah, the village was like rushed. Um, I remember reading articles and coming out of the global financial crisis, like Brazil and India were meant to be like the two emerging economies. Um, and Rio went, uh, Brazil got the World Cup in 2014. And I think there's just so much corruption and the, the cost of it blew out and they didn't really have enough money for the Olympics and, also, like one athletics ticket was one month's average wage in Brazil. So no yeah. one could really afford to go there. So the stadiums were like half empty and 
Um, yeah, so you'd be showering and it wouldn't drain and like it was, yeah, it was just, it was a bit of a nightmare and we're so far out, like we're in the, the village was in the middle of nowhere. You couldn't really go anywhere. Um, so yeah, but Rio de Janeiro, one of the most beautiful cities I have ever been to, like you, beach, you got all the mountains, like if it had the infrastructure and the, like the wealth that Melbourne has, boy, it'd be the best city in the world by miles. Yeah. yeah. So then 2017, the only kind of significant thing I've got is Nitro. You're involved there. You're in the Australian team, the green and the green and the gold. Yeah. So 2017 was like a challenging year for another reason. So Yeah, your mental I, health and stuff. Yeah, yeah, basically, yeah. So 2016 was just like every like I was just under a lot of pressure, like every day I had to make every day work to get there. And I just like, I put everything into it. Um, and then it didn't go that well. And then I flew myself back to Europe because like my Nike deal was ending. and I kind of wanted to get a good performance, at least as trying to have a little bit of leverage on that. And like, I remember going back to Europe, but I just like, I came unstuck. I remember being in Cologne and like I'm in this beautiful place. I mean, like, and just like feeling so overwhelmed and anxiety through the roof and like just crying, like just uncontrollably, like, I don't know. I just like lost it. Um, my mental health just got so bad. Um, so yeah, like I kind of flew home and, um, also had a breakup with a girlfriend and just lost a lot of stability in my life. Um, and yeah, just, um, yeah, just, oh, yeah, I just sort of lost control of my brain, sort of, like, just, yeah, sort of thinking, just lost a lot of perspective on life and just thinking negative and, like, the, like yeah, my worth and all that sort of thing. So um, I tried to sort of get it going for 2017 because I needed to sort of try and run well to kind of get some money and, um, you know, try and work all that sort of side, like the professional, professional side yeah. of the sport out and, um also had a bit of an ankle injury and yeah, Nitro was great, but Nick was the captain and like I was meant to one run race and then he pulled me out and it's just like, it was just a nightmare. Um, like I just wasn't, I, yeah, I did the first like mile, you know, that elimination mile. Yeah. And it was, yeah. So, oh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> um, and Rams had beat me that day. Um, Cause That's it was, right. he was in Bolt's team, wasn't he? Bolt all yeah, yeah, in the black. Bolt, yeah. It was, sort of more of a 3k the way we did it like more of a strength thing and what you could like how you can mm. recover and i was actually going okay because i came back around a 1200 leg in sub three minutes like not long after um like in one of the other days but yeah my like i had a really bad injury and i yeah i just wasn't sleeping um i seen a psychiatrist a psychologist and yeah i just had to take some time away from the sport um, and that's when, yeah, I decided to take off to Africa and spend um, eight or nine weeks over there. And this was, this was, I've heard you talk about it on um, Chew the Fat podcast with Matthew Tung. Like this was a, this was a rough time. Like we're talking sleeping tablets and psychiatrists and, yeah. you know, visits with your mom and kind of conversation about self-harm and all those kind of things. Like this was a serious mental illness and it's, yeah, pretty yeah, dark yeah, time like in, in your life. I remember having days where I'd lay on my floor just crying. Like yeah. I'm paralyzed, not able to move. Like I, I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like it was just, yeah. You lost control of your brain, like you kind of said. Yeah, I just couldn't like think myself way through problems, and um, I just, yeah, I just, you just would gravitate towards the negatives, and um, yeah, like I'd be driving home from places, and sometimes you'd be just looking at trees, nearly walking in, you know. 
and just I don't know it was just um it was just yeah it was rough like I just lost a lot of my support networks and I didn't know how to cope and I didn't yeah just didn't have good coping strategies and a lot of anxiety and um yeah so uh like it got to a point yeah like I was trying to run but like I was just groggy from all the sleeping tablets in the mornings because you just wake up and you feel like you're being hit by a bus and Mm. like I wake up in the middle of the night and as soon as I wake my brain would just fire up and it's like no chance of going back to sleep um so yeah it was um it was really challenging but um yeah just took nine kilos in my bag went over to (laughs) flew into Nairobi airport um had three books with me to read and I just tried to watch sunsets, um, us sunrises, sunsets, and just listen to the birds and just try and, yeah, I think off the off social media and stuff, like just, just yeah, I went off left of everything bit. away. Yeah, no one knew I was there. There's only about five people who knew I left. Um, yeah. And was that recommended to do that? Like did a professional say, hey, this is a coping mechanism, this is something that can get you back going, or was it something that you come up with yourself? um so it's pretty scary like getting on a plane with a back yeah, no, like, yeah. in a vulnerable position yeah so Catherine uh my my manager's um wife is Catherine Freeman I sort of um lucky enough to have her as a resource and I sat down with her and um she was telling me about a story where she was just so stressed out when she was overseas and racing and she had so much pressure on her so she just took off to Iceland for two weeks and I was also reading this book by Sarah Wilson called um, Making the Beast Beautiful and it's about anxiety and it sort of talked about her trip to India um, and just, you know, a bit of enlightenment and just like perspective. And I know I think just because like I've always wanted to go to a 10, which I never got to go to, but I think it's just like a bit of an affinity with Africa just because of like, you know, the people we run against and the stories. And um, I just, yeah, I just, I also like had a sore, um, like my ankle <clears throat> was like I was on anti-inflammatories as well. Like I was running in pain. It's just everything was just going wrong. So I had to take some time off for running and I was like, I need to maximize. Like I need to actually also take some time away from the sport and I need to invest some time into myself and get myself right. Um, so I actually was meant to be a shorter trip, but I ended up extending it because I was already starting to think about running and like the process. And I think that's part of it. I think, I think as distance runners, we're all like pretty driven and we're all got like a little bit of perfectionism. And I think a lot of us as well are sort of a little bit introverted, like type A personalities, yeah, got the eyes crossed the like, You know, because distance running is one of those things, like if you're, if you don't, not that, like you don't feel like you fit in anywhere, but you can just go and like immerse yourself in it. You know what I mean? It's just you, like you're responsible for the outcome, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah. So, like I was already starting to think about running and things. And I was like, no, like if I'm already going that, like I've got to be longer. Like I've got to like break that, you know, cycle. So I stayed on for another sort of two weeks and um, came back. Yeah. This is the best thing I ever did. I didn't need any sleeping tablets over there and I was sleeping and yeah. Um, just saw some amazing things and saw kids that, you know, just happy in their raggy clothes and running around and, you know, walking cows and sheep down the street it's just like it's just another world um and uh, yeah i just needed to kind of experience something a bit different and um, yeah. yeah i went to east timor and yeah i went to east timor to do a bit of teaching and same thing i just got nothing but so happy like it's yeah. a real um yeah yeah i don't know if you've read the resilience project book but um 
I'm going to see him next week, actually. He's in Shepparton just an hour from – and he listens to the podcast, actually, Hughes. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I saw him down at Collingwood Athletics track the other day. Just, just uh, ran 52 or something, didn't he, the last week, I think? Yeah, I think he had Masters Athletics on, yeah. yeah. Yep, so he had his dragonflies on, punching yeah. out the barometer reps when I was at the track. Um, yeah, so he went to, I think, Nepal and similar thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, working, um, teaching, and, yeah, that's sort of basically what kick-started that. So – yeah, best thing I've ever done. Um, most amazing trip, and yeah, and then I had Achilles stuff. <laughs> but come back and yeah, so you got the Achilles sorted, but then that led into 2018 home com games. Pretty successful. Oh, yeah. Pretty successful at the com games before that in 2014. I'm missing yeah. one. There. there would have been another one in there somewhere. Um, but then. This there was a bit of drama around this because this was the one where you finished third, but Joseph Dean didn't make the final. They ran a B final and he came out and ran quicker than everyone in the A final. Have I got that right? And then they end up selecting him. Yeah, yeah. So basically what happened was like we had the championships, we need to have the A stand and buy it. I went and got it in we the race that Luke won. I ran one forty six something low. Um yeah, so there was only really me and Luke and I think um, uh, Ralphie that had it. And, yeah, they went from heats to finals. It was pretty cutthroat. Joe didn't make the final and for some reason they put a B final on and I tried to sort of win the race, blew up a bit and and Ralphie got me in the last 20 metres and I finished third. And, um, yeah, Joe had nothing to lose, went and blasted a 145 um, and they decided to select him. Yeah, so that was just a a kick in the guts yeah like yeah, did you feel a bit ripped off like could you could yeah. you could you appeal it or anything no yeah we appealed it yeah um, and i spoke to a couple of lawyers and it was going to be expensive and one of them sort of said oh look i'll look into it and he was like one of the top sports lawyers he's like well basically the selection criteria is written in such a way that it's down at discretion and they can do exactly what they can do whatever mm. you want you've got no you know so it was a waste of our time in the end um yeah and even the fact that you'd had success there at the Commonwealth Games before, like you think that would have played a bit of weight? Like it's yeah, yeah. it was just it was also just hard. Well, the hardest thing was is because 2017 I went away to Africa and I I was in the darkest place that I've yeah. ever been in my life. So my whole motivation for Com Games was I just want to sort of get back and prove to myself that I can overcome it and I can do these things and having a home games and your home crowd and like parents in the stadium and all that stuff. It just would have been just unbelievable. Like. You know, so that kind of got taken away from me. Yeah, that was, yeah, that hurt a lot. And that sort of, yeah, put a bit of a bad taste in my mouth in terms of AA and um, just like the long, yeah, just the service I've given the sport and stuff. And I don't know, like, you know, Joe ended up having an incredible year that year. Like I think he went around 144, you know, three or four times in Europe off the back of that. But um you know, now he's sort of a little bit lost. And I just sort of think, you know, maybe giving him that, like if you give everything too easy, you don't understand what it is to work for it, you know. So I think maybe it would have been better if I was there. And, yeah, but that's just my opinion. And then what were your thoughts watching Luke get the bronze? Like was that like kicking the punch in the walls again, like when you were sitting at home? Uh, not really. Um I just remember that being just one of the craziest races. Yeah. <laughs> like that last hundred was just carnage. Um, no, like I was really happy with uh, for Luke. Like he'd sort of, you know, he had a really tough year in 2017 and he'd left Nick and 
like whenever I went for a race, he's like always ask how I'm going and all that sort of stuff. He's like one of the nicest guys in the sport. So yeah, no, I was really happy for him and um yeah, it's just um yeah, just more disappointed. I just couldn't be there, I guess. And to be honest, like he was in unbelievable shape. Like that timing on one forty five in that in the final was just outrageous. Like what he did to us down the back straight was disgusting. Um, I tried to go with him and I was just like, what is this guy's on an absolute another level? So he, when Luke is confident, he's very hard to beat. And I wasn't in the best shape, but, um, you know, that I'd been in cause I'd sort of still coming back from stuff. And I had, a, that's when my Achilles injury started though. So I, I think I was on my second round of quarter zones into my Achilles just to make the start line for that one. Um, so yeah. And, and inflammatories. And again, I was just, yeah. In a, my body was in a real bad way. There's been a bit that's gone into the body over the years. Yeah. We're up to 2019, though, I think. If I've missed anything, let me know. But that was, was that another rough year? Was that still getting over the Achilles? Like I remember. No, no. So 2018, I took myself to Europe to try yep. and race and I ran a 1K and it was really bad. And I was just my bursa in my Achilles, no matter how much cortisone or any inflammatories I put in, I just couldn't run. It just was, it shit the bed, basically. Yep. So I came home from that and that's when I had Achilles surgery. So I had a calcaneus osteotomy. They took out the bursa, they shaved down my haglands and they cut heaps of bone out of the back of my calcaneus to create a bit of space when I go into um, dorsiflexion for my Achilles. And um, yeah, so that was just a crazy recovery from that. So that was, yeah, so that was 2018 in I think August and Zach Patterson had his a month before me. Right. And then you kind of rebuilt together. And was this still with uh, Andrew Russell or when did the decision to go to Rinaldi happen? Right. COVID 2020? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, so post that surgery, Andrew gets the job at Carlton for 2019 and his wife gets the CEO of Swimming Australia job. And he just doesn't have time for the yeah, for coaching, I guess. And I've just had surgery. And yeah, so that was the time when I started coaching myself. Yeah, okay. And with those same I coached myself, again, I coached wasn't Zach, it? I coached yeah. Paul Thorpe and I coached Hanson for about a year. Yeah. And was it mixed success? I'm trying to think like I remember only because that was my 5K PB that day at Box Hill. And you kind of, you were in the field and I was like, oh, just stepping up 5K, this is going to be good. And then I remember going past her at like two or two and a half, 3K in or something. And I'm thinking, oh, oh yeah. I, should, I shouldn't be going past a guy like Jeff Risley. Like something must have gone. Yeah, no, like I was really fit, but 5K is just different. And look, that sort of rolled into why I need to see Ronaldo because I'm going into these races and I'm worrying about Zach. I'm worrying about. Mm. Well, Jimmy um, won it that day. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I'm sort of, I shouldn't be out there pushing the pace. Like, that's not, you know, and I'm sort of trying to create these races. And mm. it's sort of, racing's hard when you're trying to control the race. Like, when you race your best is when you just go in and race, like, and the result takes care of itself. But when you're trying to set up these races, it just sort of puts unnecessary stress. And, um, yeah, I just didn't sort of cope with that. And I wasn't, like, it was just hard. And, um, yeah, Jimmy, I think, ran 13.50-something. And I think Zach ran 14.04. So, yeah, it was it was good, but um, yeah, went, that was twenty twenty, wasn't it? That was twenty nineteen. Twenty nineteen, yeah, twenty nineteen. So then November. I remember. Yeah, so um, I had the surgery 
Well, yeah, I guess if we go back, 2018, I went to um, Osaka for the Grand Prix and my parents came with me and Richard and Lynn Huggins came with me because that was going to be my last race. So I'd retire. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I came back. And I think I ran 147 there and I decided, to get, I decided, yeah, I'm just not done yet. I just want to go to Europe and one last time and race. And then I sort of came back. I had that surgery with the mentality of, I just want to be able to get out of bed and walk in the morning. And I want to be able to go and run and be pain-free and just enjoy my running. So I had that surgery in like September and I did that whole cross country season. So like I ran, I ran something pretty decent for 15K at Ballarat. Ballarat, yeah. Yeah. And I reckon you did the Eckerton. Was it the Eckerton Relay down at Anglesey? Were you in a team yeah, there yeah, too? Yeah, yeah. I think our team might have won. One or second, because I love Knox Relays. They were one of my passions. Um, yeah, yeah so I did that. Didn't Harry, didn't Harry um, Summers get lost or something? Yeah, he might have. And Hanson turned, turned up late at one stage and nearly missed his race. He had five <laughs> minutes, ten minutes, turned up ten minutes before his leg. Um, yeah, so I did that. I did Sandown Relays. I did the um, Albert Park 10. I think I ran 31.06. Um and I was just loving it, just loving running and um, just something a bit different. And then, yeah, that season I, I still was coaching myself, still coaching all the boys. And I think I ran 147 in the start of 2020. And that's and I was starting to get going. Like I came flying down the home straight and ran 147.6 and then I was going to Brisbane and then COVID hit mm. and season done. Um, so- so then yeah. to Rinaldi and then you nearly, then you come out like everyone, I don't know, not people forgot about you, but it was like you kind of weren't in that conversation about who's going to qualify for the Olympics and you banged a couple of really quick yeah. eights. Did you, you went 145 twice and then a 144.8. You nearly got your PB yeah. in Poland. Yeah. So I guess, um, so, so how I sort of got to Rinaldi was like me and Zach, we did all this work together over COVID. Um, so I was running 130K weeks. I did a, 30k run two hour 30k run i was doing huge mileage like i was the fittest i'd ever been um and then i did the 10 you know that 10 relays oh, yeah, run the 10 like that yeah i ran 1051 but i was honestly expecting to run like 1035 i was like i've never been this fit in my life um and that's when i just sort of started thinking i'm doing all this mileage but i'm also getting a little bit older am i sort of getting too far away from the stuff like you know the stuff that i need to do and then we sort of got that 5k restrictions and like, I just couldn't train at all. Like my training partners live out in like the Yarra Valley. Um, so that's when I sort of decided to take a break from running. And I just, I had this feeling while I took a couple of weeks off as like, if I don't do something different, I'm just going to get the same results. Like it's just going to be okay, but I'm not going to get to where I need to be. So that's when I messaged JR and said, Hey, can we, um, can we do a FaceTime and, like the 24 hours before I wrote all these notes of like, what I want to ask. And, you know, like, cause I didn't want to be like, I, I sort of needed to see if, you know, see what he thought about training and, and then, you know, how I was going to lead that into asking him how to, to coach me. And um, yeah, that's basically how it started. And um, he said, yeah, that'd be great. And I went down and it took a little bit of adjusting and like the season went pretty well. Um, I was still kind of learning because we were doing a lot more speed. And so like I was sort of dealing with like neuromuscular fatigue, which I hadn't really dealt with as much before. And like one of my races, I thought I was in really good shape, but like I thought I was going to fall over with 50 meters ago. Like neurally, I was absolutely shot to pieces in Canberra. And 
I was sort of starting to find my feet and I ran that 146.8 in Sydney two or two days after um, running 147 in Canberra. I was just starting to come good. And and then I sort of hurt my hammy so I couldn't run Brisbane. Um, and then, um, yeah, me and Brad were doing a 24-second 200 and he clipped the back of my heel and it sent up into my hamstring. Um, <clears throat> so I had to take a bit of time off and I'm studying my master's at this stage and, um, yeah, I was just exhausted and and that's when, like, I had a bit of a – my mental health sort of went downhill again. I had another panic attack before nationals um, and I wasn't going to go up there because I just – like, this assignment was killing me for this master's and I'm trying to train. I'm trying to get my hamstring right. There's just all these things just kind of overwhelmed me and I had a panic attack. My mum and my brother sort of had to come around. Um, and then, yeah, I went up to nationals in the wrong headspace and I didn't make the final. <laughs> that's right. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like the kind of the funny thing is I didn't make the Australian final, but I made the semi-final. The Olympics, yeah. Um, so by nationals and not making the final, I was all in at that stage. Like I had nothing to lose. So I jumped in an altitude 10. I did 300 and something hours in altitude 10 over 24 days. And I did five weeks of some really good training. And I basically just went to Europe, not to run the standard, but it's like, you know what, this is my last time. I can travel with Henry. I get to race. I get to race against the best guys in the world one last time. And you know what? If I get a few points and I maybe make it, yeah, cool. Sweet. Yeah. Um, so my first race was in Canigliano, which is in Italy. So I've caught the train up there on my own and I'm rooming with a Romanian javelin thrower and I'm just there on my own. And yeah, just all the uncertainty of the season comes flooding back and I'm, I'm like eating dinners on my own. I don't know anyone. Like I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm, I was going to leave. I nearly left. That night before the race, I went and bought a couple of blocks of chocolate and I watched the movie just to calm myself down. <laughs> and then I decided, nah, stuff it. I'm going to go out to the track early. I'm going to watch. And I'm just watching people and I'm like, well, they're doing it. Like why can't I do it? And I just kind of got into a good spot. The altitude tent paid off. <laughs> And I ran off 45, 34 or something. And I was just like, oh, shit. We're on. <laughs> and it was on from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So to then, to then Tokyo, it must have been weird. Like you'd been at, you know, a few or com games with crowds. You've been at Olympics before with crowds. And then you rock up to Tokyo with like empty stadiums. Yeah. Um, and I kind of liked it. Yeah. It yeah. Was, Personality. It was, yeah. It was just... Um, you know, it was different. Like, do you remember watching like that first AFL match of COVID? Yeah, and they, they hadn't quite worked out how to use the crowd noise yet. Yeah, so all you could yeah. hear was like people talking and yeah. like that's that's sort of how I describe what Tokyo was. Like yeah, okay. You know, and yeah, there's no like because normally you go there and it's just like noise and your senses are just like just getting hammered from everywhere and um yeah, whereas you can hear just everything and, like, even post-event, like, I'm sitting in the grandstand, like, cheering on, like, we got all these drums and musical things, like, watching the high jump and all these events. And I was like, it was a way to, like, normally if you go and watch the Olympics, you just, there's a little athlete section that you're crammed into in the corner of the stadium. And we're just sitting on the front straight, the back straight. It was just, like, in terms of experience the Olympics, it was just, like, unreal. Um but, yeah, it was also sort of on the flip side different. Like Australia were just paranoid about COVID. 
Um, and also paranoid about what the picture going back to Australia is going to look like because everyone else was in lockdown. So like they were just really strict on masks, even though we're in a bubble, like we weren't allowed to mingle with anyone, even though like we're all doing international sports and I got friends from all other countries. And it was like, it's sort of a little bit like sometimes being in school camp, like after Pete um, got fourth, we managed to like scrounge together about eight beers between about five blokes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone down to like this oval at the back of the village where people would like hang out and we're just having a beer and Nudge Lamos is there and we're sort of chatting and there's a few, like just a few of us all just like one of the officials sort of came down and he's like, what are you doing? Why haven't you got your mask on? I'm like, oh, I'm just having a beer. Like, Naughty schoolboys. Yeah, I'm just like, Pete just got fourth in here. Yeah. I was like... <laughs> You know, so like it was, um, yeah, it was unbelievable. And like I, at that stage, I was just like, this is going to be probably my last ever experience. I just like want to take everything in. You know, I just want to experience everything. And um, yeah, I just had like the most amazing time. And um, leading into that, you know, like I'd spent some time at Font Rameau and with um, Jai Edwards and Ed Trippers and met those kids and not kids, but like guys and mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of like their wise old man and um, yeah, kind of, it was just like a really awesome, yeah, experience. So um, I, yeah. And I think if, if I hadn't made Tokyo, like this conversation would be very, very different. And your best Olympic, you know, result, you got through the semis. You yeah. got in strike. Well, you didn't get in strike. The people in front of you got in a bit of trouble with 150 to go and you kind of got caught up in, in you had to hurdle someone, didn't you? Was it the American guy? Yeah. So that, yeah. That, was, that was the worst part is like this could potentially be my last race mm. and I don't get to control the result because like I was feeling good and I was rolling and I had cherried on my outside, ended up winning the heat and I was on the inside and yeah, these guys fell over and Tuka ran 13.6 for his last 100 and Giles, who finished third, he didn't make the final, but he ran 13.84 and I was only like a couple of metres behind. So like, you know, if I run to that or faster, I'm somewhere in the region of 144.5, you know, 144 lowish to 144 high, which would have just been outrageous. Um, and like the last hundred of my races, the whole way through Europe with the strength of my races, I was, you know, when I ran the 144.8 in Poland, I was weaving down the inside. And um, so, yeah, that was disappointing, you know, disappointing. So I think I finished 20th in the end. Um, and like if I had been somewhere between 8th and 13th or something, like that's just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we're coming back to quarantine and stuff as well, like, and we've spoken about, like, your mental health stuff. Like, yeah. that can't be good for people who, oh, who just feel it's just, you know, you've been at the heights of being at Olympics and then yeah. you can't celebrate with family or friends or anything like that. You're, I'm not sure if you're a hotel room or you're in Darwin in kind of like the cabin set up, yeah, but how'd you go room. doing that? It was really weird because, like, we've flown into Brisbane Airport on the charter and, all the police officers like, yeah, well done. You guys represented our country so well. Yeah. They're just like hurting us, hurting us into a bus, into a hotel room. And like the hotel rooms in Brisbane, like they were nice, but like you couldn't even open a window to get fresh air, you know? So like by the end, I was just like, get me out of here. But like for the first week, you just like, I was just so exhausted from everything that all I wanted to do was just lay down anyway. So, yeah, it was not ideal, but, um, 
yeah, it just, it had to happen. And I was just grateful that, you know, we got to compete and, you know, we had to obviously abide by the rules and all those other things. So just, it, I knew that regardless of whether I was coming home from Tokyo or coming home from Europe, having not made the Olympics, I was going to be doing quarantine. I'm glad I was yeah. quarantining after Tokyo and yeah. not trying to pay 10 grand to get a single way flight home. Yeah. And then that brings us to like Saturday night, your last Australian um, you know, final. It was good that you got through this time. You didn't uh, yeah, have any yeah. dramas like in 2021. Yeah. And then Pete Bowl kind of gets on the microphone afterwards in his interview and announces it. And then it was it was kind of not shocking because it's like you've been around for a long time and it was going to happen sooner yeah. rather than later. But, um, yeah, what was the – is it the body? Is it the motivation? Is it like don't think yeah. you can achieve what you're used to in the sport? Like what made the decision for you? Yeah, well, I got home from Tokyo and I took a bit of time off and to reassess and I was sort of getting back into training and it was just sort of, you know, when you're unfit and training's hard and it's just like motivation was sort of hard and then um, I ended up sort of working a bit hard because I paced my brother for Melbourne half. So I ran past you, remember? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ran past you at the end there and um, so I had to get in reasonable shape because he ran 80 minutes for a half, which is pretty good for an 85-kilogram football player. Um, and that, so that sort of kick-started. And then I sort of got this idea about doing indoors. So that fired me up again and got me motivated. And, you know, just the opportunity even to go to Falls Creek and sit up there and, you know, chew the fat with everyone and, you know, just train. I love Falls Creek and just the, the simplicity of it and, you know, the ability just to, like, immerse yourself in training. And so that kind of got me motivated. And then, yeah, like, I, but then I went over to indoors and I found that really challenging, just, like, the tight bends and the short straights for, you know, a guy who's six foot three, six foot four. And um, Adam Schott retired in one of my races. Like, he announced his retirement and he was finishing off with two or three or four races. And he was a guy that I'd grown up my whole career racing against. So that kind of hit home. And then Eric Sawinski's a pacemaker, another guy I've kind of grown up with. And I just kind of came away from there, even though I ran 148 and 220 for a K indoors, which is not bad. Like, it's not horrible, but it's not bad. Like, they say two seconds maybe for, you know, to outdoors. Um, you know, like I was going well, but I just sort of, I was starting to get this feeling that I can't compete anymore, you know, like yeah, okay. what's the point of coming fifth and sixth, like, you know, like, my my best running is behind me. Like I'm not going to, I'm 35. I'm not going to get any better. Like my time for challenging for a final at a world champs, like it's gone. Like I can't, you know, so I sort of came back and I sort of got back into training and we had a couple of tough sessions with Pete and I was just like, he just has this ability to just keep squeezing down these like reps and he just sneaks away from you and runs a 37 second, 300 um, you know, I'm still running 38s, which is great, but um, it's just like the anaerobic stuff was just taking a bigger and a bigger toll on my body. You know, like if we think about people who are, you know, 35 and still running, they've usually moved up two or three events. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they don't stay at the 800. Well, um, that's what we said on the show last week when we kind of quickly spoke about it. Like you've made all these teams at such a competitive event like it's it's not like you done the eight and fifteen and then stepped up to the five and then you went to the roads. Like it's there's always young kids coming through who can run good eights and fifteens. Like yeah, yeah, you're in the mix of it there. And a lot of guys run their PBs when they're young. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. Like it's not something you do when you're older. And yeah, it's also just getting to the point. Like I've I've got an internship left in my masters, which I sort of actually um, organised for October November last year at the footy club and. 
that got put on hold because of COVID protocols within the AFL. And yeah, like it's obviously more and more, it's nearly impossible for me at the moment, like to make money out of running because I'm old and I'm not marketable anymore. Um, so yeah, it just kind of got to a point as well, you know, and I'm at the nationals, I'm watching like Ollie Hall just going for it. And I'm watching Rams and like, just absolutely gritting it out in the last hundred of that 5k. And I'm just like, those guys, they're hungry. They want to prove themselves, you know? And I'm just like, I don't really have anything left to prove. Like, I'm tired. Um, I just don't. I've lost that killer hard edge that you need, you know? And and Tokyo was fantastic. But more, to- Tokyo was, the, the competing was nice. But it was just more about, you know, having a nice send-off. Because I, because I poured so much of my heart and soul into the sport, I just wanted to sort of do it for me as well. Mm. It wasn't sort of like I wasn't going there with the same mentality of Pete trying to win a medal. I was just, and I mean, not that I wasn't, I was still going to train, like do my best, but I was sort of happy that I was able to get there more than anything. Yeah, sounds like it's good terms, good times. And I yeah, guess cool. having a front row of what Pete's doing in training um, probably doesn't help. Yeah, oh, look, I wish I was 29 mm. and I was in 2015 kind of shape and I was going head to head at Pete. I'd love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It'd be so good for our training group. But, um, yeah. Well, Well, what is the transition? I'm also just happy because, like, if I had retired after Tokyo, I would have had that what if. Like, I didn't get to control my last race, whereas now I know. Like, I've got nothing left to give. You know, I also got to experience indoors for the first time ever in my whole career, you know, European winter and, you know, running with five layers on. Um, You know, so I still got to like have some awesome experiences, like even right to the end. Yeah. And the transition now, like you spoke about the uh, internship, like you've done a double degree, exercise, sports science and sports management and a master's in high performance sport. Have I got that right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. that's where you'll go. But like do AA or Nike or anyone put like anything in place for you to, because it's a massive change. Like is there any, this is what we recommend or this is how we help you get from here to here. Like it's, um, what, no, what's it look like um or like figure it out yourself yeah sort of like there's definitely some resources out resources out there and like the aoc while we we're in quarantine had webinars and stuff um like that's how i kind of ended up starting my online mm. coaching thing like there was a website building thing and i was like oh that could work like to you know so like there's a lot like it's getting better but it is hard you sort of got to navigate it a little bit but i've also sort of known for a little while that like I was going to get to that point. So like I worked part-time for four years for a sports consulting company and got to sort of experience the business side of sport and realize that that wasn't me. Like I love helping people and working with people achieve goals and stuff. So that's sort of why I ended up directing into my master's and um, yeah, I've got a, I've applied, I put a nomination in for the um, athlete advisory board. So they're kind of like the athlete's voice for AA um, yep. in terms of high performance and, and the direction AA are going. So, um, you know, that's a way to stay connected and will, you know, also be good for my resume. And then, um, yeah, I'm just, um, I sort of time my internship for when I retire so that I can kind of use that to potentially roll into a job. Um so I'm doing that at the Hawks at the Hawthorne football club. Um, and then, yeah, I just picked up a part-time gig in one of the APS schools doing cross country. So I'm pretty excited about that. Cause I think cross country, like NCAA cross country looks like the most fun because 
it's not about the individual results. It's about the team and you've got to have like 10 deep guys. And so oh, that's why I love the AV system. Like that yeah. win to 10 rounds is great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to that. So I kind of feel like that was the other thing. It was a timing thing. Like if I had gone to Europe and waited, like I get back at the end of the footy season, I've got to wait a few months till preseason starts and, you know, some of the APS stuff is finished. So just with it, the timing of it, like, you know, if I can sort of do a little bit, still stay involved in the sport from like a coaching perspective and then I can sort of do my internship and being like elite performance, then I'm sort of got two different foots in two different doors and I can sort of figure out what it is that, yeah, I'm passionate about, I guess. So. Do you think you'll still run like as an exercise point of, point of view and jump in a, will you, will you go to a marathon for a bucket list and things like that? Um, yeah, so I think I'm doing Melbourne. So they signed up already. <laughs> well, I'm not signed up already, but I did the, I did the, my brother did the half last year and he said when he did the half, like he'd like to try and do the full. Yep. So it's just something that I'd like to do with him, like probably maybe just try and break three hours. Like I don't want to try and do it the way you guys do it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it'd be just like, I love my time out there doing the half and it was just such an amazing morning, like last year for Melbourne and, um, yeah, just seeing all the runners around. So yeah, I think I'm going to give a half a go, but I'm probably going to do it like with one long run on a weekend, one session, maybe on a Tuesday and then just a couple of easy 30 minute runs. So I'm going to sort of do it on the bare bones, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And what's Uh, it like on that day? Like, you know, you run with your brother, 80 minutes, sub 80, was it? Do you go under? No, nah, he went 80, 26 or something. 80. So the people around you, like you're a four-time Olympian, but that's a whole different part of the sport. Like there's a lot of people that you would have been running around for 21K that would have no idea that you're an Olympian. Yeah, and there's, no, there's 15, no. 20,000 people like in that, in that event. Like it's no like, one knew who I was. Exactly, yeah. So you think that's, do you think that's a problem with our sport, like that disconnect? Yeah, it's quite funny. So there was a, a girl that was running with us and I was chatting with my brother like, oh, we're sitting on 350s, man. This is really good. And she's like, oh, sweet, I'm going to run with you guys. So I was just asking about her running and asking about her training. And and then she must have, she ended up tracking me down on Instagram and like a few days later and she realised that she was, yeah, I guess she was running with a full-time <laughs> link. Um, yeah, so that was pretty funny. But um, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's a it's a it's a problem. Um, I, I I don't know how we solve it because like the fun running side is like a lot different to you know the track and field side. You know, like you're you're in that space. You're you know got the podcast. You've got Run to BB. Like people can like kind of associate that, but people don't really go out and run an eight hundred for fun on the weekend. You know what I mean? It's mm. not it's not like that participatory thing. So. Um, yeah. It's a different world. Yeah. And that's where Park Run's done such a good job, like just that 5K weekly times, like, you know, having those numbers. But then I'm sure a lot of those 5K runners have no idea who Shoei is. Like it's, and that's, yeah. he's the best 5K we've got going around at the moment. Well, and yeah, this is what I've sort of been thinking about for a long time. Like the people running the Park Run and the people just run around the town, they're going through the same emotions. Like they're yeah. hurting the same way, they're questioning their body the same way. Like it's all the same. It's just at different paces. Like, and they have so much respect for those paces. Yeah, just because we're fit, like we don't. It doesn't mean that it's easy for us. Like, we still batter ourselves. So, yeah, um, you know, and I've I've sort of said this before. Like, it's it's slowly changing. You know, like Run to BB are doing a great job. You know, you got Pulse. um, You got the Run Crew. There are a lot more of these. I think it just takes education. I think. Mm. 
yeah, knowledge and, and access to the information. If you get a runner who doesn't know much about it and they contact run to bb like half your time is spent teaching them about training. Mm. You know, like yeah. once they learn how to train and they understand pace judgment and fartlek and the different thresholds and intervals and stuff, then they can probably start to relate to like what it goes into performance in the same way that we do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Like if someone wants a personal trainer, there's a million of them. But if there someone is, yeah. know about running, they don't really know where to go. Oh, especially until like, you know, three or four years ago before any of these online coaches, you yeah. know, it's, it's awesome because like that high tide raises all shit. So every time I see a new one starting up, I'm like, this is good. Like this is because in the past as well, it was people giving run advice were like the Instagram influencers. And you're like, no, 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 you guys are, shouldn't be dishing out this kind of stuff just because you've got a lot of followers. Don't go giving tips about how to run city of surf. Like there's people who know this kind of stuff out there. But um, I think, yeah, everything's on the right path and moving well to kind of bridge that gap between what what you guys are doing at, at the Olympics and, and Tokyo and kind of having information about who they are when you're sitting on the couch watching them and being inspired by them when you go out for your park run on a, on a Saturday morning. So Ben Harradine, a former Australian discus thrower, he, when he retired, he took a job for one of the Swedish like clubs. So it's Box Hill. Yeah. But his Box Hill club turned over 40 million euros. Jeez. Yeah. But how? Yeah. Like from funding or grants or stuff like that? No, they owned three or four different fun runs and, like, one of them had 40,000 people in it. Like, okay. So, like, you know, whereas the people who own the City to Surf, the people who own Melbourne Marathon, I don't know, yeah. who, all the media can go, like, can people. So that yeah, money is like Yeah, it's not getting fed back into sport. It's going into rich people's money, whereas, like, this money went to the club and then the club paid the coaches, the club paid the athletes, like, um, and everyone had free rego. All you had to do was come and volunteer to give out drink bottles and all that sort of stuff. So they had, like, and a couple of their fun runs, I think one of them was at New Year's Eve, I think, like, some of them started at midnight in the dark. Um, Yeah, okay. Massive, massive turnout. So I think, yeah, and obviously AA have tried to sort of, make run west is it is that is it run west is that a fun run in sydney yeah i think so doing stuff but that's not a good sign if i don't know much about it yeah so like athletics australia don't own any assets that produce revenue so if you're not producing any revenue how are you funding the sport yeah they're relying too much on the grants and stuff you think like that's the government kind of funding and stuff like that but yeah yeah, you're saying there's this other massive income source that's there that is a business for some people to make huge money but it never the sport never actually benefits from that yeah yeah exactly how many what seventy five thousand people yeah seventy five eighty eighty thousand album marathons thirty thousand and how how much is the average entry for city to surf it'd be a good eighty bucks wouldn't it eighty five bucks so I'm not very good at maths, but what's 75,000 times 100? Is that like 7.5 million or more? About 6 million. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a fair bit of money. That's probably the whole money that... Um, road closures got. don't cost that much. Hey? 14K worth of road closures, closures don't cost that much. I'm sure there are some expenses. Yeah. That's sort of stuff on, on top of it. Do you know what I mean? So... But then you might get a 250 buck a rebel gift voucher or something if you come uh, come third. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, they're not paying down to 20th. 
Now, I remember Nick telling a story. Run, I said he just surf wanted Motram to come down and Nick said, yeah, well, his cost is 50 grand because like, mm. I think that's roughly what Motram was getting paid to go and do like, you know, Central Park 10K. 10K yeah, stuff like that. A lot yeah. of those sort of stuff. And they, they just laughed at him. Yeah. Oh, he's not coming then. Yeah. All right, mate, I've got some quick fire questions for you. Yeah, yeah. We've done some good stuff. We've been going for a while because your career's gone for a while, but here's some, uh, here's some hopefully some fun ones for you. What are your top three races of your career? You can only pick three of them. What are they? Top three races. Uh, well, my Oceana 1K record. Um, 216. 216. Yeah, 216. Was it 216 a while as well? Yeah, 216.09. 216. Even though it's on the world ranking points, it's not as much as my 332.9, but that's probably that's probably it. Um, my 352 mile in Oslo where I got fifth, that was, that was pretty crazy considering the field. Um, yeah, and then probably on my 144.4. Yeah. yeah. I like it. You went three different distances. Yeah, yeah. No uh, championship, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about um, toughest competitor, toughest Australian competitor? you've gone up against over 15 and eight, like the person's name, you see him on the entry list and you think, shit, I've got to race this guy again or, or didn't rate. Um, yeah, Brian. Yeah. We always had some big battles. I didn't enjoy racing him because he had the ability to make some meters on you in about 10 meters. <laughs> like he just had like a change of pace that not many other guys had. And if you weren't ahead of it, he was in front of you and then it was hard to get it back. Yeah. And what about internationals? Um, probably Nick Willis. Um, actually, I actually, I may actually be ahead of him on head to head because I beat him a few times when he was coming back from hip surgery. But um, he was just a guy that I just respected so much. Um, I mess he he sent me a really nice message and I messaged him back and I and early in my career when I was naive, like all I wanted to do was beat him. But when I understood the sport and I started, well, when I started to learn more about sport and I understood it, like he was the guy that I wanted to be, like his ability just to not only run the times he did, but that like when he did, like he was always in shape at the right time. And like some of his Monaco races when he ran 329, like he's out the back, but he just like his pace judgment and the way he runs through fields. I just loved it. Yeah, he gets it right, doesn't he, at the right time. Yeah. Um, putting you in charge for putting you in charge at AA for a for a day. You can make whatever changes you want and they're gonna stick. What do you do? Athletics Australia. Oh, I think I need more than a day. No, okay. I'll give you a week. I'll give you as long <laughs> as you want, but what, what things are on the top of your agenda? You walk in there. Yeah. I think we've got an issue at the moment with the pathway for young kids. Okay, because a lot of them end up in the States. I think, I, I think now in the time of my career that I've been doing the sport, it's changed and now you nearly have to go to a college in America unless you think you can run 334 by the time you're 21 mm. where you can sign a deal and you can kind of be doing it professionally. Yeah. Otherwise, you're better in that system, learning, and then you come out of that system. If you're really good, you win NCAAs, you're like Ollie and Morgan, and you can put yourself in a good situation. And you got time to make yourself good. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, world athletics? Put yourself in charge of world athletics. What do you change on a global level of the sport? Um, I actually think they're getting better. I think their yeah. social media and their content stuff is getting better. So 
I think they got. I think we got to get better, and it's it's not maybe it's not world. Well, it's world athletics, but we've got to get better at storytelling, mm. like understanding the athlete's story. Like, and it's pretty hard to break into Australia media because football saturated. But no one knows the story. There's some really good stories on athletes out there, but it's just not it's not relevant. You know what I mean? And it's hard, hard to be a fan if you don't know them. Yeah, it's hard to cut through when you got so much football and cricket and all that stuff. What about this one? You are a message to a young 16, 17-year-old who's potentially listening to this, got similar PBs that you had at 16, 17. So, you know, not lighting the world. They're very good. Not, oh, they're still pretty good. <laughs> not lighting the world on fire, but they've got a bit of potential there. Yeah. Um, they aspire to, to get an Olympic singlet, Australian singlet at the Olympics or world champs or whatever. What do you tell them? Uh, do the basics really well and keep turning up. Very good. What about this one? You've you've experienced like the pre and post technology side of things. So like when you started, no Strava, no Garmin's, no social media. What do you miss about the simpler times? And then what are you glad is here during like this new era of the sport and the way that technology's impacted it? I don't think the only negative I can think of with the technology is maybe comparison. Mm. You know too I mean? much of it, yeah. Too much comparison and maybe people too much overthinking their runs. Like I don't know about you, if I go on an easy run, I have my watch set with just the time. I don't yeah, I do the same. Yeah. I don't know I feel and I'm like, I can pretty much tell you at the end of the race what at the end of the run what it probably will be. Yeah. I like having a guess. Five, yeah, five seconds of what it is average K pace. Yeah. So I'm all about feel. I love I love the feeling that running gives me. I don't need my watch to tell me about it. Yeah, good one. And then um, maybe the final one, in hindsight, what do you change about your career? Anything? No regrets or would have you, you know, different coaching changes sooner or stay for longer or get in a better position in that semifinal so you don't have to jump someone with 150 metres to go? I'll give you one wish. Um. I wish I respected my body more, but I was so driven when I was young that I would have jumped through anything anyway. Do you know what I mean? So I probably needed someone to better manage me in early on in my career. Um, what I'm kind of learning is it's like, if you want to be really good, it's just about consistency, you know? And if I go back and look at Stewie, I remember racing Stewie in 2018 over 1500, at the Brisbane track classic after I missed out on selection and Luke won in 3.37. I think I ran 3.38. Stewie ran 3.40. This is in 2018. Like by 2020, I think he was running like 3.31. You know, like he's just put a body of work together over the last four years where you can turn up to Penguin in December and run 3.50. Yeah. It's, it's an expectation. You know what I mean? And, like, that comes with consistency. And when you have, like, a consistent run of performance as the way he is, if you keep turning up to an Olympics or a world champs and you keep putting yourself in the finals, like, the sport's about timing. Eventually, he's going to win a medal. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, um, Lewandowski turned up enough. He got bronze in a 1500 in Doha. Like, um, obviously a superstar athlete, but so is Stewie. Um, you know, one of the Ingebrigtsen's brothers, what's the – uh, Philip, he won bronze in 2017, I think. Like, 
So, but my career was like one good year, one year out injured, one good year, one year out injured, one good, like I just never got that consistency. So that's, that's my biggest regret is that I didn't get the consistency. And I think I had a lot of talent that I didn't get the most out of because of that. And yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah. what could have happened if you had an eight year or six year uninterrupted run? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where instead, you know, I've had plantar surgeries and like osteitis pubis, I've had Achilles surgeries, I've had everything. Hey, so, uh, yeah, that's my biggest regret is just, um, and like sometimes injuries are part of the sport. You can't get rid of those, but I think I probably could have maybe been a bit smarter in different mm. periods. Who do you want to thank? Who who stands out as people that have helped you so much over your career? Well, we wrap up. I'd like to point out one, and I don't want to be like disrespectful either. Um, Andrew Russell's probably had the biggest um, influence on my career, not only as a coach, but as a mentor and, um, sort of especially in his role at like in what he does at Carlton and Hawthorne like he just gives me so much advice because that's sort of what I, the area I want to get into so just being able to have the ability to pick up my phone and call him whenever it's pretty incredible um, Andrew Lambert was like more than a physio he was sometimes my psychologist um, yeah um, obviously got to say thank you to Nick like as much as we maybe butted heads and there's some things that I didn't agree with. Like he helped me a shitload. Um, and like, I'll be forever grateful for that. I don't think I would have potentially had the career I had if it wasn't for him. Um, James Merch, my manager um, for the last part of my career. Um, Alphonse, Jack over in Slovakia. He's my race manager. Um, Gary Maridis. Yeah. So that they're probably all the people who've been involved. I, I keep a pretty small circle and then, yeah, there's so many training partners and teammates and stuff that, yeah, it'd be hard to name them all. Beautiful, mate. Well, I've been nearly going for two hours. There's a lot <laughs> of content in there. As I said, you got a long career and yeah, just a massive thanks for giving up this amount of time and your yeah. contribution to the sport over all these years. It's been, a, as I said, a lot of years times watching you in person and now in streams and stuff like that. And yeah. You always know it's um, interesting when you're in a race because you usually have a red hot crack. Yeah, thanks, man. And yeah, like it's been a bit of a challenging week. And when you kind of messaged me, I was, yeah, just really excited. I thought this is probably not a bad way just to recap it and sort of go over it and not put it to bed, but, you know, just kind of be satisfied and, and sort of, you know, go to Brisbane and hopefully be a bit lighter in the shoulders. And it's just storytelling too. And it's like, you're yeah. having fun. Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll watch the Brisbane result. Do many people know you're doing that? Um, are people going to think well, you're coming yeah, out of retirement? Yeah, it's kind of funny because I, was, like, I retired and then it's like, wait a second, it's back yeah, racing. Back. John Farnham um, kind of stuff. Yeah, so no, I did just put something on my Instagram story just letting people know that if they want to come out and watch me one last time, it's yeah, it'll be my last one. If they want to watch me in person on the live stream. Oh, that's going to be special. Beautiful, yeah. mate. Well, we'll, uh, we'll try and package this and, uh, yeah, get it out maybe tomorrow, Friday, yep. Saturday, just to uh, then people can have a bit of a listen and then hopefully get a few more eyeballs on the last last race of Jeff yeah. Rosen. Well, yeah, thank you. And I, I'm probably going to have to come to you for some advice on marathon training soon. So Yeah, I'm more than happy to help you out. I, uh, yeah, it'd be good to see you. I, I think you'll surprise yourself in that because it is a whole different, you know, part of our sport that – um so many people do so what do i need to be in alpha flies or vapor flies what's my shoe i think either or you're pretty good okay. just uh yeah i went alphas for melbourne 
um, just because I, I like that little foam thing out the front. But yep. if I'd left those at home and accidentally packed the vapor flies, I wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. It's, yeah. um, they're both just so good shoes that you, it doesn't matter. I'm thinking alpha flies just so I've got a bit more foam under my feet just to save the legs a bit. That's what I'm thinking, especially if I'm 80 kilograms. Yeah, yeah. You're throwing a bit more weight through them than I am. Yeah. Huey so. reckons the alpha flies, are, he loves them. He wears them all the time. And he, he loves them because he reckons the heavier you are, the more you get out of them. Well, yeah, that's what I always say about Moose, who I do the podcast with. Like he's a bit of a bigger fella, and I reckon he gets yeah. more than like the, the 4% benefit. I reckon he gets like 10 that's why he's had a big breakthrough since the super shoes have come out. So, uh, yeah, it's got nothing to do with his good training over the years. Yeah. It's all about the shoes. After you guys had a few beers, is like the 10%, does the number just go further? Yeah, up? it keeps going up. Yeah. 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 Beautiful, mate. Well, I'm sure we could do this for another hour if we wanted to, but thanks again for your yeah, time. Nah. Yeah, thanks, mate. And I'm, uh, yeah, pre-Melbourne, I'll have to come and jump in for some runs. But here I stand, a man whose roots he understands, and I'm gonna hold my head up high. I was told as a young man, doesn't matter if you're white or black. Just show love to everyone you meet, doesn't matter if it don't come back. Understand.